This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hey guys, this is Nick Nanavati from the Art of War podcast, and you're listening to another episode with my friend John Damaris and our new acquaintance, Brian Poland. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey, everyone. Hey. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, recent SoCal Open winner. We're sure you're pretty stoked about that. We're here to listen to you talk about Tau. Um, I'll go ahead and let Nick take it away with the first question. Yeah. So, Brian, you, you won SoCal Open with Tau. How's that feel? Uh, you know what? Actually, it's really exciting. But at the time, uh, as soon as I had won, I was just really glad it was over. Uh, oh, I actually, I, you know, it's just a grueling and any six round tournament, especially when, um, when you're playing for a top table, it, you know, you're really focused. And in that last game, my adrenaline was really up because yeah, I thought it, I had lost. And it was a nail back. biter, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. And so, um, I actually felt like as soon as I'd won, I felt nothing except relief that <laughs> it was done. It was um, I didn't, crazy. I didn't feel excited about it for like two days after. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, we'll get into the games in a, in a little bit, but why don't you tell us what your list was for the event? Yeah, so I was bringing Tau, which is my my normal army, if you will, and uh, I had some typical things and maybe a few atypical things. The the, the typical part was three Riptides, um, and I had the advanced targeting system, which is the extra AP, pretty typical there. And I brought the target locks on them, which was somewhat new for me. Target lock lets you move and shoot with your Riptides, and I had normally been taking the velocity trackers, which is the plus one to hit against fly you know, kill those Eldar flyers and stuff, such. But I thought I'd seen the meta moving and I wanted to take advantage of some movement that the Riptides have. So I changed that. And um, then I brought three commanders. Um, that's not too special. I think a lot of people do that, but uh, I normally actually only play with two. Um, so I went up to three uh, just because I needed some very reliable uh, Melta shots. And so I took Melta on all of them. And uh, two of them were Cold Star Commanders. Those are the ones that can move 40 inches if they want to. And then I had a ton of drones, 47 drones, um, uh, some of them in big units and then some in small two-man units. And uh, I filled it out with a battalion with uh, an ethereal, 15 fire warriors, some pathfinders. Um, That's about it. Gotcha. So your army was a battalion, a vanguard, and outrider. Is that correct? Yeah. You have to have three detachments to get three commanders. So you got to find a way to make that work. Yeah. It's not too hard with Tau. You have really good elites. You have really good fast, and you want us yep. to take all three in both. So Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't too hard. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing, aside from your fusion commanders, is uh, your list is really similar to Richard Siegler's, who with the MSU, MSU two-man drone units and... Yeah. Uh, all that stuff, but you guys have some. I don't know if it's playstyle differences or actually fundamentalist differences as far as how it plays entirely. But um, I guess one is that he runs three cyclic commanders instead of fusion cold stars. Yeah, and then two is that he doesn't go for the 
double, but he doesn't go for the battalion. He just says, screw it to command points. I want efficiency. Yes. Uh, yeah. And he also plays the marker like characters. Oh, um, you he don't. Swears, that's right. That's right. Yeah. He swears by those. And actually a lot of people do. So I'd say those are a few differences. And, uh, um, yeah, I think let me so, just highlight that really quick. One of the, I believe in our game, you had 12, 11 man shield drones with eight or drone units with eight shield drones and three marker drones. Is that right? Yeah, and I've been doing that for a long time, so that's okay. kind of a mainstay for me. I mean, along with all the other questions I asked, why that instead of the traditional marker-like characters? Let me just toss that in there too. Sure. Um, my background playing Tau is I've always played Tau as a kill point denial army or just even a point denial army total. Um, and so if you've looked at any of my armies for the, the uh, majority of the season, I played an extremely denial-heavy army where there, was, there wasn't even any three secondaries you could pull on me. Um, and so... I, I avoided the characters for a long time because I found that they were liabilities in a lot of my games. Um, they could get wrapped easily. They could get um, headhunter easily. Snipers were getting more prevalent and taking them out. And typically, if you don't have the battalion, you need these characters to be off on objectives. And you just can't guard them well enough to stop them from getting wrapped or sniped or whatever else. And so for me, they were just a huge liability. So I started walking away from them. Um, and looking for my marker lights in other places. And the main place I found those marker lights was in marker drones. Um, yeah. Interesting. So you didn't find that the, the random splattering of marker drones wasn't inaccurate? I mean, they hit on fours even with a drone controller. And They uh, do hit on yeah. fours, but they, they, have, they have a unique ability, which is that they can move and shoot without penalty. Um, right. Everyone else with a marker light suffers it. And so even those really great, characters uh they still move and shoot and hit on fours when they hit um and so uh, except for the cadre fireblade he'll hit on a three i guess but um you know that's just one marker light and i get i get uh three or four basically for the price of a cadre fireblade and so i'm i'm gonna get more out of it and it doesn't give up kill points it's not a wrappable thing um so and at the end of the day it's a drone um so it gives me just more options i think yeah, just to just to beat the dead horse a little bit. Do you find that your the fact that they're on drone bodies makes them too fragile? I know personally when I play with or against Tau, I take marker like characters or I play against marker like characters, and I'm not playing Raven Guard. So basically, they're the last things I get to kill because I have to go yeah. to the drones, then the Riptides, then I could start shooting commanders <laughs> or characters. The only way that they I actually kill them early is if I get to wrap them, which can happen, but you know that's really hard to do against a tower army with three riptides and 40 something drones. So they get to shoot all game. Whereas like your marker lights probably don't if someone just kills them. My marker lights make it till turn three or four. Yeah. Um, they'll never, never make it past turn four. Um, unless I've already won the game by turn four. Um, so yes, you're right. My marker lights do die. I don't find that I need them anymore after that. It's rare that I need them. Um, I'm usually getting my reroll ones for the back half of the game for my ethereal um, because I'm usually in position. Um, I don't necessarily need to move with all my riptides. And so I'll, I'll pick up my, my reroll ones from the ethereal. Um, from the first half of the game, I do find that I get the five marker lights I need or the seven marker lights I need um, spread around. Um, I do find that I get them from those drones especially in combination with the the stratagem, the uplink marker light stratagem. Um, the other thing that I find is I actually find that they are quite defensive because in order to kill my first marker light, you have to kill eight shield drones, which is a feat. Um, that is not an easy thing to do. Um, and so 
I know those are things you want to kill anyways, but it's rare that people want to get through them. And especially with my two-man drone squads, uh, those are up the board and often holding, and you have to go for those first be, to take me off of the objectives. So it's rare that you're you're feeling like you want to try to take out my 11-man drone squad when I have two-man drone squads to go for a first. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I guess the last bit to the market light debate is, do you find against things that are hard to hit, specifically like mm. our flyer spam, uh, when they're minus two, potentially minus three, they, you know, the BS two plus cadre fire blade goes to a four up or five up. Eventually, yep. he'll get one through. Let's what lets you then use the strat to yep. kind of buff it up. Um, shield drones probably don't, or marker drones probably don't do that. They hit on sixes or even sevens. So, mm-hmm. how do you hit a flyer? So, um, with the flyers uh, in particular, um, getting five marker lights, even with the characters, is not easy it's not a sure thing you know if those care like the um the characters that are the cadre fire blades yes they can be hitting on fours but the the other characters are hitting on fives and they're just single marker lights and so the likelihood of you getting five even with the stratagem is not amazing so what you should bet on is that you're going to get three four um which really just equates to re-rolling ones and again i have that ethereal i can just stand still and re-roll ones or I can mont ka, advance up, act as standing still, and still reroll once. And so um, if I need to, it's it's often just as or more reliable just to go off the ethereal at that point than try to get five marker lights. Interesting. So you're really just using it as a kind of a point-saving mechanism since you get nine marker lights for 90 points as opposed to two marker lights for 90 points. Yes. You, just don't, you build an army that doesn't need so many marker lights, so you don't need to invest as many points into them. Is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair. And uh, I find uh, as drones, as of course, as drones, they have other benefits. You know, late in the game, you'll soak up a big glass cannon or something like that, which uh, is always good. Yeah. And I guess the part of the choice there is, like you said, you're new to target locks, but target locks probably go a long way with helping you not need marker lights. Yeah. Well, um, you know, for me, the target lock uh, was always a hard, I always wanted, I always preferred the target lock. But uh, my Eldar matchups were just so bad that I needed the help. Um, what I'm finding now is more often than not, I can move within 12 inches of these Eldar planes. And so um, I'm already negating minus one there. So it's, I'm getting the benefit of what the velocity tracker would have given me. And then it works in all my other matchups as well. Um, the only reason I ever took velocity trackers ever was because I was playing a static version like i was playing a shadow sun double cow yawn static gun line where you you literally couldn't move for two turns because cow yawn doesn't let you um and so in that sense taking the target lock was wasted points and going for the pluses to hit made more sense um i'm not a huge fan of that playstyle um anymore and so uh going for movements the way to go you almost just answered my next question in the last answer, I was going to say that you often favor Montka from Montold, and as our game demonstrated, uh, being a really mobile tower me a lot like what Richard Siegler yeah. does. And you two seem to have, be having the most success as tower players, at least in America. So why do you why do you not like two turns of full rerolls to hit as opposed to just moving around the table? What's your thought process behind that? Yeah, two turns of rerolls to hit is can be crushing, but it's only ever crushing against players who let it be. So if your opponent moves their army up into your perfect shot range and then stands there for two turns while you wipe them off the board, 
you're you're going to wipe them off the board and it's going to it's going to be crazy you're going to really take them out but it relies on your opponent choosing for you to do that because you don't have any movement while you're doing montka and um it, you know once you get past round 2 or 3 you're never going to have an opponent who's going to just do that for you um, right. unless actually yeah. I, sorry yeah i played against a top player prior to you in round 3 uh, at SoCal, and he had three Riptides, six Broadsides, and Shadow Sun. So I just hid my entire army out of line of sight and yeah. popped Kalyan and shot a lot of SMS and he killed like seven or eight intercessors. Didn't really do anything on my turn two, just triple shot Thunderfire Cannons and uh, picked up his Fire Warrior squads for some easy kills and kill more. That's right. Yep. And then he rinsed and repeated another full four million SMS shots in, with mm-hmm. rolls to hit, killed most of my intercessors at that point. But then his army was low on drones because I'd just been blasting away with Thunderfires, and yep. I was able to just come out with all my Dreadnoughts swinging, all my Grab bot cod, Pod coming in, and I really just ended the game on my bottom of turn two because he yep. didn't move at me the way you did. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so Kalyan, uh, really the stars have to align for Kalyan to be worth it, um, and your opponent has to make a mistake, or you can force them into a move where they have no choice but to come at you, and then you can Kalyan. Um, and I, I will still do that, right? Because I can move up turn one without advancing and then save my Kalyan for turn two or three um, once I hold the middle of the board and there really is nowhere to hide. But, um, you know, the penalty of having to stand still with nearly your whole army is a heavy penalty to play uh, pay in, in ITC or in really any format. So um, I don't find I do it too often. So, you know, speaking as a newer player, it seems like... Uh a common theme that we hear is the game is one in the movement phase. And then to me, it looks like your tower army is sort of designed with that in mind. It can be very mobile yeah. if it needs to be, it can get to the firing lanes that it wants to project force into. So like the way I think about it, and you tell me if I'm way off base, um, if you can move your riptides without penalty, you can always move into fire lane. So it's a lot harder for your opponent to sort of dictate what you shoot at. Like you get to choose your targets of opportunity. Um, a lot yeah. more freely and it allows you allows you to be more surgical even if you're less powerful right so obviously shadow sun double what is it kalyan where you get to re- yeah. yeah double kalyan is mathematically superior like you're going to do more damage but you're not going to actually be able to line up the shots you want so it doesn't matter yeah. absolutely well and the riptide is a re- remarkable unit um virtually every stat and rule it has is exceptional, right? It's above average. And that continues into its movement statistic. It, it is a move 12. It moves 12 inches and it flies. And because it has the monster keyword, it doesn't get penalized by the new, let's say, uh, uh, vehicles landing on ruins rules or anything like that. So it is just a, a remarkably mobile giant robot. And um, and I, w- I don't see why you'd want to waste that fantastic stat that you're that you'd be losing out on by not moving it. Yeah, I, I definitely prefer the mobile tau personally, as opposed to all the immobile tau armies out there. Yeah. I, I just find it so easy as a as a top level player to play around the static gunline tau. And if you don't have to take the movement phases, I'm gonna control the table. I'm gonna get all the exactly. objectives. I'm probably just gonna outscore you the entire game, even if you do table me. And it's just yeah. not gonna matter. Well and even even you know if you want to win almost any uh, almost any event these days, the events are getting so big that you're getting multiple undefeated players. And so winning your games isn't enough. You you have to be 
scoring as close to maximum points as you can. And so, you know, I know a lot of Tau players, maybe they, maybe they can be static and, and squeak out the game and get, you know, 28 points or something because they're never holding more, they're never bonusing, et cetera. Um, but that's not enough to win. And, and we saw that at SoCal, right? There were several undefeated players with really high scores. Um, it, you had to go for a maximum score almost every turn of the entire tournament in order to win it. Yeah, for sure. That's actually part of why I went Iron Hands myself instead of White Scars. Um, White Scars, I think, have a lot more play to a, for a top player to take advantage of. But at the same time, a lot of games you're sitting in the corner hiding, just playing janky, and then that's going to lead to like a 25-point 25 win. Right. And get a couple of those, and that's a fast track to a, at best second place. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's heartbreaking to be undefeated, play against a bunch of big players, but, but come up short by a few points. It's, it's happened, happened twice this, term, yeah. this season. So yeah, I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. Um, and yeah, I think that's another reason why we won't see chaos really taking the top dog spot for the rest of the season. Not just that the Marines are, are kind of mean to them. It's also that, like you said, the events are getting so big and to win GTs aside from like LVO and Nova or Adepticon, you need, to just max people. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you guys see changes coming to the tournament scene as a result of that? Either more three-day events, more Friday, Saturday, Sunday events, or do you see them changing tie breaks from battle points to like strength of schedule maybe or something like that? Like they would use um, in a magic? I'm not sure. I'm not sure on the strength of schedule change. That's a very interesting one, which I don't think has been proposed too much. Um, I think three-day events is everyone's easy solution with not an easy solution. So yeah. three-day events solve all the problems that we're talking about. They also create a whole new set of problems like logistics. Yeah, three-day events are super, super hard. I think, you know, Warhammer, although it's getting very popular in the competitive scene, the vast majority of people who show up to these tournaments are are not necessarily the most competitive players. There's a lot of people who come out, they love the hobby, they want to hang out, they want to play some great games. Um but the competitive side of Warhammer is far from mature, far, far from mature. And so people being able to, um, you know, even just cover the cost of three-day events uh, from the organizer side, let alone the the people coming out, I think that's going to be really hard. Yeah, hard for, for me to go to a three-day event, uh, I'm in a unique case, but for most people to go to a three-day event, take an extra day off work, an extra day away from your family, where if you have kids, you also have to deal with them being yep. in school and stuff. It's so much more of a logistical nightmare where you can only really do it for the largest of events where, you know, this is like a special thing like Nova. Or yeah. It's like know. a vacation that you've planned or something. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like, whereas normal GT, it's just a weekend trip, do whatever, leave Friday night, leave Saturday morning, even come back Sunday night. Yeah. No, harm, no foul. I guess. And I think, yeah, with an eSport or magic or something like that, if you're coming home with a, you know, like a $10 million prize, I think you can justify it. But, you know, Warhammer is still just really, you're just doing it for fun. I guess the other, the other option we could explore is more team events, right? Because they need less rounds. So that's actually, I don't want to get too off topic. So let's bring it back to the tower army after this. But <laughs> I think, I think team events are the future for 40K because it allows way more people to play without crushing your rounds. Uh, and then making the tournament be like five days long. Uh, and it's also much easier to follow and support from a sponsorship standpoint, from an enjoyment standpoint. I think most players who played in team tournaments prefer them. And uh, I just think it's the future, eventually, hopefully. So back to Tao. Yes. Sorry to sidetrack us, guys. That's that's my fault, but it's that's okay. something I do sometimes. Um, 
I don't remember where we were with Tao. Anyone have questions? Well, let's uh, let's jump back to your list. So, what are some other things that you've considered rotating in or out of your list? Yeah. Um, and then, what are some things that you've maybe tested and found to be lacking, or sure. you know, just some different choices? Because I'm sure that this this list has gone through a lot of probably iteration. Most lists do. I'm kind of curious yeah. to see hear about I, that process. I I own uh, I own a very large amount of talent, so I I I love to try everything out. And in fact. To be perfectly honest, the vast majority of my games, maybe 80% of my games are casual narrative Warhammer games. Oh, really? Um, yes. It's, I find it really hard to be a top player when you play a bunch of casual games because you're not getting the right type of practice. In. I, I love casual games because um, I get to play with all the deep cuts from the codex and I get to play against all kinds of esoteric units from other codexes. And uh, you get to see kind of different angles of what you could do with some of these units and rarely does it pique your interest you know as uh is there something magical there but you get you get a lot of insight and and sometimes i'll come up against some really um rare units on the table and it's like oh i know this i play against this every weekend so um you know i, I don't know it's fun sometimes i but i i really just enjoy it as well but so i will say that i i've tried a lot with the tau because of that and um you know one of the big changes for this event was the fusion commanders over the ion commanders. And I, I was think, so curious about this choice, so I'm glad you yeah, brought it up. The ion commanders have been all I've been playing for most of the last year. Um, and it's because the ion commanders are amazing, right? They can take on everything. They take on hordes, they take on elites, they take on vehicles. Um, they're so uh, versatile and powerful. And so many things that they wanted to kill in the game had you know, like a four up invuln or a five up invuln. And so the fact that that gun was low AP um, didn't really matter. It got the job done, right? Minus one AP is all you need for a night. And so I regularly had ion commanders doing like 16 wounds to a night or 16 damage. Um, and so they're great. Um, but a recent change in the meta made me think twice about it. And that was that um, vehicles had been steadily coming back more, especially with iron hands. But also Centurions had been uh, popping up a lot. And Centurions have two up or one up saves or zero up saves, I've, you know, if you're Iron Hands. Um, and so they have no invuln, but they have really good armor saves. And then they have four wounds, um, which is kind of a, a, a magic number for a fusion if you're in Melter range. Um, and so I was finding that I just had too many good targets for the high AP, high damage. And um, so I took a chance on it and went went all in, actually, on the fusion. Um, and that paid off a lot, a lot at SoCal. I I didn't have a single game where they didn't get so much back because the of that. Fusion Cold Stars definitely were a game breaker in our game. Yes. The mobility it, in itself, that's the other thing. You can't take eye on, on a Cold Star. And so... The second you make the switch back to fusion, you're allowed to have uh, cold stars. And I would have had three cold stars, except one of them was my drone controller, and he was going to spend the majority of his game next to the riptides, next to the drones. So I didn't waste the points on it. Um, but the other two cold stars, they're just so um, powerful, so versatile. Just the threat of them makes your opponent play in certain ways and and make mistakes. And so I really love them. Yeah, I also want to take a second and comment on the the way you use your fusion cold stars. Um, I think a lot of people when they see fusion cold stars get way too aggressive with them. Yeah. They're, they're like forty inch movement. Oh my god! And yeah. fly right next to a character and blow it up and trade your commander for it, or right. blow up a tank or something. Get within twelve of a crimson hunter and shoot it 
from not minus two, and then your commander instant dies. Yep. And do you want to get into why that's not good and why you shouldn't do that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was I played commander spam when the codex before the codex was out, and I was so guilty of the kind of like YOLO commanders where I would just send them out and trade them. Um, rarely did I even trade up for them. Uh, it was horrible. And I very quickly figured out that a turn six cold star commander <laughs> is so powerful um, when there's very little left on the board and they're all spread out. And the cold star is just every turn jumping from one corner of the board to the other, just one-shotting any pretty much any unit they want other than a horde. Um, that that is so, so powerful that I would rather not shoot for the first three turns of the game and have my commander for the last three turns, then you know, go for a big kill early on and lose my commander. Absolutely. Even if I have, even I mean, if I have it, a chance to survive it, I won't do it. It's about shooting for, like you said, like when everything's kind of dead on by turns five and six, and now your commanders are a relatively tough profile for the scraps that That's are right. up in your opponent's yeah, army. They actually are. It's it's a much scarier thing to deal with. Where it's like, okay, the commander flew up at me in turn one. Maybe kill the tank, maybe kill the character, especially maybe if I have invuls anywhere, and then it just dies without me going out of my way. I'll smite it twice and charge it for free movement, and then it'll get exploded. Exactly. Um, yeah, never as a Tau player. Um, my army has six six units, right? Three commanders, three reptiles. Everything else is just a support. And if I lose a single asset, I'm in trouble against any opponent. So I need all of those assets, and I can't afford even in turn six to lose one. I, I I just don't ever want to lose a single asset. Um, and so I would, again, I would rather not shoot. I killed the commander. I did good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I, and actually, I think throughout the whole tournament, I lost maybe, yeah, one commander and one riptide, uh, two riptides in the whole tournament. And so I play very defensively with my key assets. Yeah, and I think a lot of times I think people get way too focused on the idea of winning quickly. And I know it's something John has been discovering on our journey together. Um, it's a six-turn game, not on a one- or two-turn yes. game. You don't have to deal such a crippling blow to your opponent on the first couple turns to win the game. You need to win the game by accruing more points over the course of six turns. So yes. as long as you're not dead by turn two yourself, you are good. You're still playing the game. So yes. defensive in the beginning is probably way more important than offense in the beginning. And that Absolutely. even applies to a tower army. Absolutely. So, yeah. One of the things that I've learned in my relatively short journey at this point is that uh, if you outkill your, you outscore your opponent on primaries turn one, and it just requires you to like kill one thing and sort of hide, like that's way more valuable than killing three things and sort of, racking stuff up for your opponent to hit out of the park on the next turn right it's uh you can play like a slow and steady game and as long as you're staying at equilibrium with your opponent or even better advancing your game towards winning further than they are like you force them to make the bad decisions and to, to yeah. overextend that way and that's how how i see a lot of high level players play so it's pretty one, interesting. one thing i i got good at because i used to play a static online tau and i played it for a long time an army like that actually loses the first half of the game. Um, you're, you, you can never hold the board. Um, you're, you're finding it hard to get secondaries often early on. And um, you will probably get kill more, but it's not, it's not for sure. Um, and so you are deliberately going 
down on points at the start to go uh, to go for a win at the end. And I'm not recommending that play style, but I got really good at it. And, um, and so it's something that I can fall back on if I need to. And in fact, that's what I did in my, my last game where I knew points didn't matter. Basically I had, I had accrued so many points through the rest of the tournament that any win for me would count as a win total. And so I, I decided to, uh, give up points early in the game in order to not risk weird dice taking me out. Um, whether that was a good decision or not, it was a playstyle I, I was very used to. And so that's something Tau can do, um, but you have to be very cautious of the math. You have to make sure the turn that you try to break out and go for, try to start scoring over your opponent, that you have enough time left in the game to do that. So it's interesting that you you added that last line there, cautious, caution with the math, cautious with the math, whatever it is. Um, I find, and this is something I struggled with. I've only played town one real GT. Um, I went four and one and lost my one game to a great player, Andrew Gagno, barely by like one point. Um, but I found I really struggled with in the, in the tighter games, committing the right amount of firepower to kill something. So right. what happened in our game, and I'll just give you this as an anecdote, was I initially was like trying to split fire with Riptides and SMS and, and I had Missile Pod Commanders at the time um, between multiple Caladiuses. So I was trying to see what I did to a couple ones early on and then allocate the remainder of my firepower efficiently towards the end of it. What ended up happening is I left two Caladiuses on one wound, which was, right. as anyone knows, horrible. the worst thing possible. Um, but you don't – it feels horrible shooting an 18-shot burst cannon at a four-wound Caladius. So how do you kind of cope with – that aspect of playing Tau. How do you know what's the right amount to allocate? Yeah. You can't fall short, but you can't. You don't yeah. want to waste fifteen burst cannon shots. I love this part of playing Tau, and um, if I was ever going to be cocky about one part, this is the part of Tau I'm best at. Um, and so, with Tau, you actually have very few assets. Um, as I said, you have maybe six things that you can shoot with in your shooting phase, and this is pretty much all your damage, right? You're not doing almost any combat ever. Uh, not never, but almost never. And um, you you do have to get your kills or kill mores, and you do have to also be neutralizing key threats. And those aren't usually, this, those aren't always the same thing. And so uh, you, you kind of, you, you kind of have to be very careful about this. So what I tend to do is at the start of a turn, I will try to go big. I will, uh, you know, split fire aggressively and see how things go. But I will keep in my back pocket a plan to kill more or kill the same um, by doing something less than ideal. For instance, in that last game against Junior, I want to take down the Knights. The Knights are what's going to continue to give him a chance in the game. But the Guardsmen are the easy kills. Um, shooting Guardsmen, I can almost always guarantee a unit will die um, from a Riptide. But I need that Riptide gun to hurt the, the Knights as well. And so if I don't kill a knight and it's alive on one wound, I could go for a whole turn, not have any kills, give my opponent a lot, uh, kind of a big swing. So early on, I will put my guns um, kind of all in on this knight um, and see what I can do. And then I'll kind of abort partway through, um, depending on how it goes. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of slowly abort. And so if the first, if the first um, riptide goes all in and it goes hot and I feel like I'm going to get this kill, then I'll put everything else in. But if it's looking not so good, then the next one will start to split fire. So, hey, the big gun into the night, the little gun will chip away at uh, at a unit of uh, guardsmen. 
And then the last one, it's like, oh, okay, this knight's definitely not going down. Now I have enough shots to kill two units of guardsmen because I chipped away at one. The SMS can go at that one. And then the big gun can go to another and I'll still get two kills. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of cautious. And one of big part about that is about being in a range. And so when you choose your activations, you have to choose them in the right order so that you leave the, the riptide with the most options till the very end, things like that. Uh, so that's all pretty crucial with Tau. Super interesting stuff. Um, and I think one thing that you touched on right there was the idea of aborting halfway through your plan. So like you're shooting a knight, you're shooting a knight, you're shooting a knight. It's not going so hot. You're not yeah. going as much as you're supposed to do because dice are dice and math is math. Um, and then you slowly drift away from that mission of killing the knight that turn and focus on, okay, let me salvage something out of this turn. It's gone sideways. Let me get some points here. I think a lot of players don't have the discipline it takes to realize it's not going to happen. I can't bank on now my remaining two dudes killing this knight because that's not math. Now I'm playing to get lucky. Yeah. And people get tunnel vision. They're like, I'm shooting the knight. That's the plan for the turn. It's all in on the knight. Fell short, lost to dice. You didn't lose to dice. You lost to not changing your plan halfway through. So I, I just wanted to, you know, that's an amazing thing you brought up is all. So like, just to make sure that I understand, basically, let's say in our scenario, we're shooting a knight, right? And you're planning on killing the knight. That's going to be your kill for the turn to make sure that you get a kill because you have to get a kill every turn in ITC. Your first Riptide goes into it, does like no damage because you just roll poorly. He rolls hot on saves, whatever. Um, and then you realize that with what you have left to shoot, you're now not likely to kill the knight. So you're yeah. likely to not have a kill. So you divert your resources that you have left into like, oh, yeah, I can kill this guardsman squad over here. Sure, it's not what I want to do, but I get my kill for the turn. Hey, maybe I can pick up some other random small thing as well and kill two things to change yeah. my plan a little bit and maybe even turn lemons into lemonade by scoring more than I would have otherwise, right? So yeah, kind of. And actually you can you can even be more efficient than what I what I described isn't exactly even how I would do it. Um it starts with even earlier decision making. Did you get five marker lights on the night? Okay, sure. Now you did. You don't start by putting a riptide into it. You start by putting fire warriors into it. And it's like, okay, did the fire warriors do a wound to the night? That's crucial because if you did, now you can pop the plus one to wound. And that means I'm getting plus one to wound with all my riptides. Whereas if the first riptide has to get in to do the wound, now you're only getting plus one to wound with two riptides, which isn't nearly as interesting. And so the efficiencies can start early on. And so let's say I find I shoot my three fire warrior squads. I don't get a wound. Now I'm going to have to put a commander or a riptide in and get less than efficient wounding or uh, yeah, wounding on it. Then I might say, actually, you know what? This turn is no longer about dropping this knight. This is going to be a different turn now. This is about killing their scoring potential. And if I was careful about where I position my models in the movement phase, I now have that option to change plans entirely and say, okay, this knight's going to go down next turn when I get uh, more efficiency right from the start. And this turn, I'm just going to kill 50 guardsmen, which is a huge win unto itself. And now I'm just going to start going up by kill more, hold more, and stopping their recon, et cetera. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that's interesting there is how you you can change your plan over and over and over again um based on how your shooting phase is going so like you said you start with marker lights then you start with your fire warriors and kind of like what brandon grant spoke about in his art of war episode um you start with like your las guns and you ask the elder player do you want to use lightning fast and they're gonna say no yeah exactly you just chip wounds at him away because things happen and then by the time you shoot your lehman ross at him or in this case your riptide he's half dead from nothing and do you want to Lightning fast to go with four, five, six wounds left? No, you don't. Same exact exactly. idea. But yep. question here, 
is how do you use your movement phase to account for that? Because obviously, if a knight lives or if a knight dies, it's very, very different game scenarios, even if you killed some guardsmen for some points. How do you make sure that you are okay if the knight lives, but can opportunistically kill the knight should things go right? Yeah, so... Um... And this is it doesn't have to be a knight in the example. We just keep saying knight. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because a knight is pretty... Um devastating target so you actually have to play very differently around a knight as a tau player because um even the knight just exploding in your castle can be game winning for them so you have to be very cautious around knights um, because even in death they're they're actually often more dangerous in death against uh, an army that's all clumped up um so i would say that uh rarely do i feel threatened by units you know if i still have drones and i'm all clumped up then they're not going to want to charge me and unless there's a juicy piece of terrain or some some character that ignores Overwatch, I I can be pretty brazen with my placement um, sometimes uh, when it regards to uh, being charged or shot back at. And so what I'm considering is, am I where I need to be for my secondaries, recons, holding objectives, etc.? And then two, do all of my riptides, uh, am I maximizing their options and and my commanders, especially the things that are short range? And in fact, I'll move the things that are short range first just so that they can be sitting in a key position to allow them to be at their maximum range, 18 inches or whatever else, but actually still in a range of two or three targets. So I can, so I can have choices because the worst thing for me is when I get to my shooting phase and everything has only got range on one target and I don't have any choices left. Um, that is really bad for me and, and you get a lot of wasted efficiency and Tau don't get that many phases to do damage in the extent of an entire game. And so you can't, you can't afford to throw one away. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like you like you said, you're playing with six units more or less, and you have to be correct with all six of them. Yes. And I think um, you get a little bit more slack in the movement phase. Uh, not to say that it's easy, but as long as you have your drone placement right, you're more or less immune to damage with your heavy hitters. So Yeah, it's can, uh, I would argue Tau movement phase is super tough. Okay, um, I, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of downplayed it there. I was like, if you get it right... It doesn't matter how you move. It's <laughs> hard to get it right. Yeah, yeah. It actually really is because, um, uh, you know, playing most 40k armies have auras, right? But it's rare that a hundred percent of your models have auras, and that's what Tau is. And in fact, not only do a hundred percent of your models have auras, but the vast majority of my army have two different auras at two different ranges that they care about. So. My army has, of course, greater good overwatch range, which is six inches. So you have to make sure you're kind of in these triangle formations where everything is within six inches of everything. And then you have the the savior protocols, which is a three-inch range. And what you have to be very careful about is which drones are within three inches of which units. For instance, I kill my marker drones last. So I always make sure my marker drones are the ones that are within three inches, because if you're not paying attention in a shooting phase and I'm just pulling drones, pulling drones, and I end up pulling the one that's the linchpin drone between two different or three different riptides. And now, although I have a bunch of drones left, they're not in range. Um, that can happen. And, and so you, you, you have every single model with a bubble, and uh, if I'm playing with 50 drones, that actually can be a really long movement phase with an advance and with all these bubbles and all that. You can end up spending, I've seen people spend legitimately like 50 minutes on a movement like that. Yeah. So one of the things that really impressed me in our game actually was how you handled the movement phase with them. And I definitely just glossed over it. So it wasn't just that you were able to keep all your drones within three inches of everything that mattered. And your it, it was very methodical how you advanced the Riptide under Montka, 
saw what its advance role was, moved it accordingly, then moved like a drone unit, then moved another Riptide, then moved the commanders, then moved another Riptide. Like it was all very calculated so that if you rolled a poor advance roll on anything, you'd still be okay. Could you go into like how your thought process on that just a little bit? Yeah. Monka is really, really dangerous if you do it in the wrong order because your Riptides move 12 and your drones move eight. And often people will deploy their drones behind their riptides. And so I've seen people move up their riptides. Let's say they roll a juicy advance. So it's moving uh, 17, 18 inches. Uh, now the drones actually have to get a really big move in order just to stay in range. And uh, often they'll move up all the drones and find, uh-oh, I just moved these riptides out of drone range. And so um, another that's the first mistake, and that's the most critical one you don't want to screw up on. The other thing is if you have units that have shorter range, like my commander's, Often you'll move your riptides first and then realize, oh, my commanders literally have to be standing right in the footprint of that riptide in order to be in range and not be the closest target. And so um, I will start backwards from what is my shortest range unit, in this case, a commander, mark out their position. Then I will find what is a predictable movement for my drone units. Um, and then I will start moving my riptides alternating with drones. But you also have to be careful if you move up drones first, again, you might be placing drones in places where the commanders of the riptides need to be standing. And so uh, it's a delicate balance and you you do definitely have to pick your order very carefully. Yeah. I think that's one thing that most players gloss over. When they think of Tau, it's like, okay, keep the drones in three inches of everyone, but also make sure you're moving models in the right order because they all want to stay in the exact same spot. But you can't do that. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um. Awesome. Well, so I think we covered a ton of stuff, but I have—I feel like I should have more questions. I'm just like not sure what to ask. John, do you have anything you want to ask right now? Um, I just was curious if uh, you feel like your list is in its final form, or are there any things that you're considering swapping out um, as we move into like you know Salamander showing up, um, yeah. uh, IF showing up, blah blah blah. I mean, the the meta is going to change some more. I think we're still in kind of a state of flux. So no, the list isn't in its final form because the meta is not in its final form. And so I'll always be adjusting to it. Um, and I think Tau uh, more than most armies, sorry to cut you off, Tau no, more than most armies changes little things about their list with respect to the meta. Like, like support systems. Support systems, vel yeah. velocity tracker versus target lock. And now your commander weapons, cyclic ions versus fusions. So yeah. I don't know if any final form, like this is 100% always what I'm going to take, is going to ever be a thing for Tau or even most armies. But do you think this is the combination of units that you're really happy with? Or is there things that go in and out, like Pathfinders, the Battalion, things like yeah, that? Yeah, the Pathfinders come and go for me. Um, uh, I, I'm not super sold on the Pathfinders. It's a cool way to get their drones. Obviously, the Pathfinders aren't great, but the drone unit that comes with them is great. So uh, the five-man drone squad with the Pathfinders is so versatile, right? Of course, it's another five-man uh, squad of drones, which is good. And it can vanguard move, so it can move before the game, which is huge because it can be a really crucial screen. Or in a couple of my games, it's the only reason I got bonus first turn because it was just the fastest drone squad on the board. Um, also, it has a drone in there that minus D3 from charge. Um, that's really big. Uh, there's a lot of things in there that, you know, you've got a smash cap that ignores Overwatch, but I can prevent it from getting into base with me. And now the whole army has to take Overwatch. Little things like that can be big efficiencies for me. So I like the drone squad. I hate the Pathfinders. Um, so I don't know if it's a worthwhile tax for me yet. I'm still feeling that out. 
um, I would put them as one of the more likely things to potentially go away. Gotcha. Um, and you're sold on the battalion. You, you think that's worth it? I know Siegler doesn't play the battalion. Um, no, actually, I often play without the battalion. I I think that the Tau stratagems are fairly awful, and you can play without them. Um, you can play without them almost entirely and not care too, too much. I'm pretty sure um, when I played Tau at the 1GT, the only strats I used were plus one to wound, yeah. extra markerites, and occasionally heal a Riptide or make a Riptide active full. Yeah, those and and um, extra markerites and make a Riptide active full are one CP, and you're, you don't often need rerolls and things like that. And so, you know, you can get those CP if you need them in just with a couple Vanguard detachments. Um, the battalion for me, um, the fire warriors, I don't love them. I don't love them. Uh, they're attacks for me, but what I find I do is I can often have them behind my main castle, um, kind of as a backline screen and it works, it works well enough. They're, they're the biggest liability in my army because of course they, they could be wrapped. I'm almost never letting you do that, but they could be wrapped and, uh, they just die easier than anything else. So people with a Thunderfire Cannon who might not normally be able to get a kill in the first turn, you know, they've got a pretty guaranteed kill if they want it. Would um, you prefer, in that scenario, there's like a Thunderfire Cannon or something, like one thing can shoot the Fire Warriors, like a Wyvern or something like that. Yeah. Um, would you ever consider just passing enough wounds off the drones to ensure they don't die? Yes, I do that all kill? the time. Okay. I do that all the time to deny a first turn kill. Um, you know, I've seen a lot, I used to do it against guard players a lot. They put like three or four um, you know, artillery pieces into a fire warrior squad. And then when I have one fire warrior left or two fire warriors left, I'll just start tanking it on drones. And they're like, oh yeah, you can do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then they go without a kill. I, yeah, I love that play. Um, in in our game, you had though. like on turn one, there was one Pathfinder left and I had one Thunderfire left to shoot. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was so happy he just wasn't within three inches of any drones. <laughs> That's true, but and also it, it kind of feels bad to have to shoot a whole Thunderfire <laughs> and a single I, I, I already lost that exchange enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. So I guess the last question I have for this episode is kind of like, what is your approach to missions with Tau? Like in ITC, are there any go-to secondaries you do, recon? I know you move a lot or engineers yeah. on something. Um, and then how would your list change in other formats? So... Um... The obvious secondaries for me are the ones where I can get them just by killing the things I want to kill anyways. I think that's true for everybody. Um, but I have quite an ability to kill things. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of these, uh, uh, you've got a lot of gangbusters out there these days with uh, aggressors and uh, centurions and things like that. And, you know, everyone wants to take out your opponent's centurions and I can do it particularly easily. Um, and so... Those are the best for me. Uh, I love taking engineers with fire warrior squads, especially if they have nothing, no answer to it. Um, so that, no answer, you mean no indirect, I assume? No indirect that I can't deal with faster than they can deal mm -hmm. with me. Um, but so like uh, border teams would you would would not deter you from like taking engineers if it's just like nine mortars. No mortars don't, especially fire warriors have a three up in cover. Yeah, um, you're not going to get through them, not that fast at least. Um, so, uh, yeah, I love those, but yes, as you point out, recon, uh, my army is mobile and has a ton of two man squads that I don't care about. And so those can work. Those just work super well. Um, and it's rare, it's rare that I can't get through the majority of someone's army in a game. So even if they have only a handful of characters, as long as I know those characters have to be up the board somewhere, um, I can go for things like headhunter and marked for death and things like that as well. Got it. 
So um, how would you change your list for other formats, say like the Nova format with slightly different secondaries and potential endgame objectives uh, or ETC if you're familiar with that? With Maelstrom. So I actually, I actually don't play those too often. I do play Maelstrom. Funny enough, I play Maelstrom <laughs> casually a lot. Um, and yeah. just, just to give you a refresher, ETC is yeah. basically three components to every mission. One is objectives. Uh, they'll either be turn by turn, score at the start of your turn. If you're on it, you get a point. Or end game, X amount of points at the end of the game. There's Maelstrom, which is just draw a card, do what it says, score some points. And uh, kill points up to a maximum of six. So... If you if I kill twenty of your drone units and you kill fourteen of my units, I score six points. If I kill twenty and you kill ten, I still score six points. Yeah. If I kill twenty and you kill eighteen, I score two points. Right. So um, one of the things that I found works. Uh, one of the units that I love, and it's just not quite good enough to make it into my armies most of the time. But I've done so well with it um, in many games. Is the piranhas, the tau piranhas, and uh, they work really well in maelstrom missions for me because they're so fast. And uh, they can actually defend objectives really well, and they can uh, go and grab objectives really well. Um, because they have that ability that when you kill a piranha, it drops its drones, and then the drones are still holding the objective. Um, I, uh, I've, I've definitely found that they can work really well for me, but they just give up kills. Uh, they give up secondaries in ITC, and they give up kill points so easily um, that I just had to If you take solo them. piranhas, they don't give up any secondaries, do they? Or you just butcher's bill, I suppose, but that's your That's philosophy. right. Uh, they, if you take them solo, they don't. Um, uh, but they, each piranha is two kills. Of course. Yeah, right. So you're giving up a lot of kill wars in that aspect. And it's not like a lot of people think the Tau army already gives up a ton of kills because this style has a lot of two man shield drone units, but those are a pain in the ass to kill. They're so hard to kill. They're, they're way too hard to kill for what they are. They, the, they, that's exactly right. Yeah. And the yeah. piranhas poop out two gun drones, so those just two die. gun drones yeah. they die, yeah, unless they could drop into cover or something. Um, but the uh, yeah, the two man uh, the two man shield drones is about as hard to kill as like five vanilla marines, or maybe even harder. And sometimes, so when you're looking at a two man squad, you think it's just that, but really, you need to think of it as the equivalent of like a full squad. Well, so of, so mathematically, uh, uh, a shield drone with a five up feeling pain from anything one damage is yeah. essentially a three up invulnerable save. So yeah. you're killing two Marines with storm shields. That's what you're shooting at. And yeah. like, would you expect a squad of guardsmen to kill two Marines with storm shields? It's possible. It's just super unlikely. Anything with mass shots. The problem is I've seen so much of the game move to these kind of high quality shots rather than these mass shots. Um, and as you're moving to higher quality shots, like even your intercessors, right? They're like minus three AP, two damage intercessors. Right. And it's like, cool, minus three AP, I'm still got my four up save, right? right. And the two damage is good, of course, but um, you know, ev everyone's just moving towards these high quality shots and you're just not going to get through very many shield drones with high quality shots. Yeah. But it's uh, even like high quantity, but not strength four or strength five. Yeah. If you're like tons of last guns or when I played Gene Stokult, I would use my flamer bomb. I would double shoot that thing. And like, it would be 140 shots at strength three across a bunch of different units. And I would average like 10 drones. It was horrible. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I had that happen a lot of times and, uh, it, the math doesn't look right to people on the board, but if they remember that on odds, I'm going to save many more than I don't. Right. So People see that I'll, I'll be taking 20 wounds and then maybe four will die. And they think that that's completely out, out of the realm of possibility. It's like, no, no, not really, actually. That's that's actually totally plausible. Um, and yeah, so a lot of people... Yeah. About six die. So four yeah. is like, it's completely within reason. 
It's totally within reason, yeah. And so um, I had a couple games where people put big Assault Centurion squads in with Flamers and Hurricane Bolters and, you know, would walk away with a total of five or six dead. And um, you're like, okay, yeah, that that can, that, that wasn't well off the, the plausibility curve. People just underrate how hard they are to kill. Yeah, it's a very common mistake I think people make. Awesome. So I think that just about does it for the overall strategy. Unless there's anything you or John wanted to add to this. Actually, I just, just wanted to ask where people can find you. I understand that you have a YouTube channel. So if you want to talk about that, I think that'd be pretty cool. Oh yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I've been, um, I've been doing a YouTube channel. It's called tabletop Titans and, uh, you can find us on YouTube, uh, there we do live games every Thursday, 6 PM Pacific time. And, uh, yeah, we've been having a lot of fun with that. We've been really trying to experiment with kind of really high quality production. So we've got a really nice studio that we built and, uh, always experimenting to get it a little better, but we do like tactics and, uh, just kind of, uh, competitive and then semi-competitive, um, battle reports, uh, live. Yeah. Very cool. And then, of course, we want to take a moment and just thank Frontline Gaming Network for hosting us. We really enjoy being here. If you guys haven't had an opportunity, I mean, chances are if you're listening to us, you've probably heard some of the other podcasts on uh, the Frontline Gaming Network. But, uh, you know, Stats Center, Chapter Tactics, and Signals from the Frontline are all quality, quality shows. So you guys should check them out. Nick, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we closed up shop? No, I think that about just wraps it up for us. So yeah, check out Frontline Gaming and all the other podcasts on their network. They're pretty cool. And uh, check out Brian on his new on his YouTube channel. He's a pretty cool guy. Knows what he's talking about with Tal. And yeah, thanks for watching, guys. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at aow40k.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect. On Facebook, just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.